Uh, we're going to come to a time now, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, a Bible app, anything like that, if you could turn to our passage today, Matthew chapter 16 now, beginning at verse 1. And when you found that, would you stand together with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word? When I'm finished, I will say this is God's Word. I would ask if you'd like to respond by saying thanks be to God. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how, how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing about yourselves at the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? The seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's God's word. Maybe seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word? Open eyes and hearts and ears to receive what you want us to receive today. You've already accomplished an incredible work in me this week. I'm asking you to do that now in each one who hears, each one gathered here, Father. Um, and as I always ask now, eternal God. Would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, it is an experience that you are almost certain to have come across if you fly enough, but that, well, if the pilot is skilled enough, that is, you may not even realize you've experienced before. That is what is referred to as a missed approach. A missed approach, which in aviation terms refers to a landing that has to be aborted because the runway is not sufficiently visible to the pilot when they're at decision height for landing. Now, yes, all aircraft have ILS, the kind of instrument landing system stuff that, that helps them uh, in, in even near zero, zero, visi zero visibility conditions. So uh, the pilots, air traffic tower, they all have information given to them like altitude, flight path, speed, all this. They're not just eyeballing it up there, they have help. But still, regardless, a pilot still needs to be able to properly see the runway they're landing on, or the consequences could be catastrophic. And I think it's a helpful illustration to kind of lead us into what we're looking at as we continue in our teaching series through Matthew's Gospel entitled Kingdom Come, because what we're going to see in our passage today are a number of missed approaches to Jesus, spiritually speaking anyway made all the more striking when you consider both the biblical knowledge of one group missing Jesus 
I mean, they, they had so many things that pointed to who Jesus was. And then another group that had all this firsthand experience with Jesus, advantages that should have made Jesus completely visible to them. Particularly when you consider the flawless approach of the Canaanite woman with Jesus that we looked at last Sunday, who had none of those advantages. And yet here she easily approaches Jesus. But they miss Jesus all the same, to varying degrees of catastrophe. And in order that you and I today might see Jesus as well as ourselves rightly and avoid these same missed approaches to Jesus ourselves today, I want to spend just a few minutes together in this passage with you looking at what, the, what these missed approaches were specifically. What did it look like? How, what did they involve? How did they get there? And then obviously avoid them ourselves today. I want to think about how we don't do that today because that's the thing, right? I say this to you often, but what we're doing Sunday after Sunday is not just like gathering here to read through some historical book, you know, look at some, just meander through marginally interesting historical narratives. That's not what we're doing here. We are thinking about how these things apply to us directly today. Missed approaches to Jesus that we're going to look at are are ways of approaching Jesus that we've all likely carried out ourselves before. In fact, as we look through them today, you may even realize I'm, I'm living these missed approaches to Jesus right now, like as we speak. So I want to look at what these missed approaches are, talk about how to avoid them, because we have all the same advantages that these groups carrying out these missed approaches to Jesus in our passage had, and more. We've got so much more than they have even. And, and we don't need to miss Jesus. We don't need to miss him. We don't need to miss all the fullness of life he came to offer. Not if we don't want to, that is. Not if we're given eyes to see and ears to hear that what Jesus offers is so much better. So much better than the safe predictable existence or the the armored posture we so often have with other people that most of us are living right now, even as we're longing for so much more. So let's dig into this together. Let's look at this. If you've closed your Bible, Bible app, would you open them again with me to this passage, Matthew 16? Follow along with me as we look at these two missing approaches to Jesus. Okay, let's look at what the first missed approach to Jesus is, which I'm calling testing Jesus' faithfulness. Testing Jesus' faithfulness. And again, as with a missed approach in aviation, both missed approaches to Jesus in our passage today have to do with insufficient visibility. Uh, Insufficient visibility either of Jesus or ourselves or both. And yeah, if you've read even just a little bit of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life before, you know already, Pharisees and religious rulers, they were pretty deficient in in both of those areas, Um, not so good at seeing Jesus, not so good at seeing themselves either. They, of course, would have had a very different view about that, Uh, but we see from an outside perspective and the way that the gospel writers show us that they certainly didn't have great visibility of either of those things. But what's interesting about this combination of religious characters gathering to interrogate Jesus, literally the moment he returns from Gentile regions in particular, is that while both of these groups listed here, verse 1, Pharisees and Sadducees, they were both Jewish, they both followed the law of Moses, uh, they, they both were very powerful cultural forces in their day among the Jews, they were still very different teams. Pharisees and Sadducees, very different, uh, often didn't you know, play well together in the sandbox, uh, that the Pharisees, on the one hand, really strict obedience to the law of Moses. That's what they were about. 
And as we saw two weeks ago, they, they had developed this very strict list of traditions that they followed and wanted everyone to follow in order to ensure that the law was honored and kept. And the Sadducees, on the other side, they were more like uh, politically concerned. They were more the aristocratic bunch, um, definitely, and, and very focused on temple life. That was kind of their main areas uh, of focus. So my point is, they had a lot of similarities, but these also were groups that often bitterly disagreed with each other. And yet here, in Jesus, it seems, they've found a common enemy to fight. Um, as one commentator put it, they were united in being unimpressed with Jesus. Which I think is exactly why, convinced of their own rights, standing with God because of their religious obedience, as well as doubtful of Jesus standing before God, they come to him, look again at verse 1, to test him by asking him for a sign from heaven. And it's interesting to note that the word for test used in verse 1 here, and the word for temptation in Matthew 4, where Jesus is led out into the wilderness and tempted by the devil, they're the exact same word, actually. I like what uh, F.D. Bruner said about the comparison between these two testings, noting both here and in the wilderness, the tempting comes to Jesus in the form of the sensational, the spectacular, and the special. Adding, moreover, the temptation is not to do something evil, but something good. Similarly, Adam and Eve, in their own temptation, were tempted not to be like devils, but to be like God. But I don't know, like... Even as I read this passage, maybe you noticed it too, it feels like we're experiencing a kind of collective deja vu. Because if you remember what we looked at not that long ago in Matthew 12, um, the Pharisees and religious rulers had come to Jesus and asked him this exact same question already. We wish to see a sign from heaven. They'd already done that. And, And if you don't remember, you weren't here. Sign from heaven, like what that means, what they're asking for is not just, hey, Jesus, do another miracle. Do something for us now. A sign from heaven was a very specific request where they were saying, we want some outside accreditation, something that, that, that's going to show us that you're from God. Okay, So it's not something Jesus is going to do. It's something that has to happen from heaven to accredit him or to attest to the fact that he's truly from God. So something on the level of fire and smoke covering Mount Sinai with Moses or, or fire from heaven coming down consuming the offering on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They want a sign like that that's going to point to the fact that Jesus is actually from God. It also looks like collective deja vu because Jesus responds to them in the exact same way he responded to them before. No sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah there, that was a direct reference, a metaphor of his death and resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale and then was freed, so too will I be three days in the grave and released. But if you look at verse 2 and 3 now in particular, you see that this time, along with giving them this same answer about the sign of Jonah, Jesus also gives them kind of a tongue-in-cheek response to their request for a sign from heaven. He's pointing to the physical heavens, like the sky. He's like, oh, you would like a sign from heaven? Well, let's look up at them. Okay, well, you all know uh, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. You, you know that. So he's kind of giving them a tongue-in-cheek response, but his point is actually still quite serious. As D.A. Carson states rightly, Jesus' point is clear enough. The Pharisees and Sadducees can read the signs that predict weather, but they remain oblivious to the signs of the times already happening. And with the sign of the times, what you see there in verse 3, it's not referring to some past event, some future thing that's going to happen. It's referring to what was spoken of all through the Old Testament, the time of your visitation, 
That's the times Jesus is referring to, the time of your visitation. You don't see the signs that that's, that time of visitation is now. The Pharisees and religious rulers just can't see how the inbreaking of God's kingdom through all these miracles that Jesus is performing are a point to the fact this time of visitation has arrived now. And as Carson concludes, he says, the proof that they cannot discern the signs is that they ask for a sign. If they could see that these were already pointing, they wouldn't have asked for another sign. They'd see they were already pointing to him. But here's the thing. When, when you step back and look at this missed approach by the religious rulers, kind of like from a big, big picture perspective, like as a whole, what you see in their testing is that they're testing Jesus' faithfulness. Testing his faithfulness to God as well as faithfulness to everyone who's believed that he'd come from God. That's really what they're testing here. And in their elevated view of themselves and suspicious view of Jesus, what they're ultimately saying is, okay, Jesus, okay, let's settle this once and for all. Okay, let's just do it right here. Uh, Yeah, sure, sure. We've heard all these reports of you doing all these miraculous tricks and, and healings and all these things, and we've got some people looking into that. But here, here's the thing. Here's your chance right now to prove once and for all you can be trusted and that you're truly from God. That's what they're asking for with this sign from heaven. Just prove it right now, and and then we can just put this matter to rest. And in response, what Jesus says is two things. Both, first of all, everything you've seen and heard from me up until this point already points to the truth that I'm from God. And then secondly, what he's saying is, and actually, you will receive an unmistakable sign from heaven not long from now. Not on your schedule. Not when you come asking for it, but you are actually going to receive a sign from heaven that clearly attests to the fact that I'm from God when my Father will raise me from the dead three days after I'm crucified and laid in a tomb. This sign from heaven, Jesus' resurrection, which as I often say here, upon which everything Jesus ever said and did hangs. Everything hangs on the truth and reality of his resurrection. As Paul says clearly, 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised from the dead... Our faith is futile, and basically we're all wasting our time here with this church stuff. It's meaningless if Jesus did not truly rise from the dead. But now, take, take that same missed approach to Jesus the religious rulers had, and now I want us to like apply that to our own lives today. Think about asking yourself this question. How often do I test Jesus in exactly the same way? How often do I test Jesus exactly like the religious rulers are doing? Requiring additional proofs of him? Additional accreditation of Jesus' faithfulness and trustworthiness to me? Beyond what he's already done and coming to earth, taking on the form of a servant, dying the death I should have died, being raised to new life so that all who put their faith in him one day will experience our own resurrection and have new life in him in the present as well. It's as though we're like, I need to see something more. You ever ask Jesus that? I need to see something more than that to really know that you're true. And I think Jesus' response to our testing of his faithfulness when we do that is the exact same response that he gave to the religious rulers' testing in his day. No other sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. That is the sign that I'm truly who I say I am. But here's the thing. Don't, don't hear that response from Jesus with some kind of like angry, frowning face Crossed arms, no other sign will be given. Don't don't hear it like that. Hear it instead as coming from a gentle and lowly Savior, pointing to the holes in his hands and his feet and his side and saying, what other sign is needed? 
What more do you need to prove either my love for you or the lengths to which I go to rescue you? Because as long as you're coming to Jesus like the religious rulers, coming to Jesus saying, yeah, 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 okay, so yeah, I've read my Bible, I've seen all that incredible stuff that you've done, it's amazing, it's awesome, that's really nice, but if you really want to prove yourself to me, if you want to show me that you're real and I can trust you, then you'll do this. You'll offer me this. You'll fix this. Whenever we come to Jesus like that, we miss who Jesus has already proven himself beyond a shadow of a doubt to be. And we substitute the true treasure of life in Jesus for whatever this thing is we're asking for. Proving that what we're really seeking is not actually Jesus, but what he can do for us. Which, hear me, that's not for a moment to suggest that, okay, so now... Don't come asking Jesus for anything. Um, you know, that if you're praying for some desperate need in your life, you're coming to, him, coming to him in prayer, praying for your friend, that Jesus is going to be like, seriously? Wow. I've already died a horrific death on the cross for you. You tell me now you need something more? That, that's not what he's doing. But only that with whatever request I bring to Jesus, it's never brought as a test of his faithfulness. I never come bringing it like, I need you to do this, or you're not true, or you're not loving, or you're not faithful. No, I bring my requests to Jesus with an understanding that he already has been faithful to me. That's why I can come to him. And trusting as he's proved and shown again and again that he is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Okay, so that's the first missed approach to Jesus. Testing Jesus' faithfulness. How do we do that today? How, how, how are you testing Jesus' faithfulness today in your own life? Are you doing that? The last missed approach that I want to look at together with you from our passage is forgetting Jesus' faithfulness. Forgetting his faithfulness. And where you see this next missed approach to Jesus is in the next part of our passage here, beginning right there at verse, verse 5. Look with me there. Here Jesus' disciples have arrived on the other side. It doesn't say the other side of what, but we are assuming this means the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They've come by boat, and when they get there, they realize they've forgotten to bring any bread. Which I'm assuming what that means, by describing the fact that they're having this discussion, means they're hungry. They're hungry, and they're having that kind of back and forth of like, you didn't bring anything? What? How are we going to deal with this? Guys, there's nothing close to us to go buy bread. Like All these discussions, they would have been happy. So they realize they haven't brought anything along, and it's in this context of their realization, as well as this kind of focus and panic on this immediate need, Jesus says, somewhat cryptically, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which as we see in verse 7, leads the disciples into this discussion about the fact that they have no bread. They're just fighting with each other, why did we, and fair enough, I mean, to some degree, okay, I mean, bread is... Made with yeast, okay? So like, there's, not like there's no correlation at all between what Jesus says and, 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 and how they're discussing. But I don't know. As you read the Gospels, I remember one pastor saying this once, like, you got to think that there's a lot of times where Jesus like, kind of held his face in his hands a lot, pinched the, the brow of his nose a lot as he was talking with the disciples. Because there just seems to be so many occasions just like this like, where, where they're like, just completely missing what he's saying. He's telling them something, and they're like, this, right? And he's like, no, actually, no, come here. Let me show you. So lots of, lots of moments like this, but then here, notice. Look at verse 8 with me. 
When Jesus seeks to correct their misguided interpretation of his warning, guys, I'm not talking about bread, he doesn't rebuke them for their lack of understanding. He rebukes them for their lack of faith. Oh, you of little faith. For faith, as Leon Morris rightly notes, is that most important aspect of being a disciple, namely, trust in the master. And what begins to emerge as you look at what Jesus goes on to say in verses 9 through 11 in reminding them of his miraculous feeding of the multitudes is that Jesus' comment about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees was actually in response to their focus and kind of panic on their need. We don't have any bread. How are we going to ever solve this problem? It's like Jesus is he's saying, I know your need. I know the fact that you're panicking and the fact that you have no way to meet that need in and of yourselves, which means what he sees is they've completely forgotten about Jesus' ability to miraculously provide when all and any means of provision are lost. He's shown them in these incredible ways. I can handle it. I can do that. That's not a problem for me. And yet, as F.D. Bruner rightly notes, our insufficiency is not the problem. The problem is unbelief in the sufficiency of Jesus. That's where we miss it. I think that's the reason Jesus is warning his disciples against this pervasive, easily spreading yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees in their own hearts and minds because failing to see how Jesus' miracles pointed to the fact that he truly was who he said he was, that he had all the ability to easily meet their need, Jesus' disciples were displaying the very same unbelief as the Pharisees and Sadducees in asking Jesus to perform a sign. They're displaying the very same unbelief. And what I'm saying is that this missed approach to Jesus, I believe, is one that we 100% also carry out today as well in our own lives. And notice the keys to a missed approach in this sense here. What reduces our ability to see Jesus properly, it's a combination of things. A focus on our need instead of on the one who can meet that need. We're focusing strictly on what the need is and not thinking about Jesus. And particularly, our failure to remember the faithfulness of Jesus to us in the past. That's why I'm calling this second missed approach forgetting Jesus' faithfulness. We've completely forgotten Jesus' miraculous ability to do these things. Because they had these incredible examples that they literally just lived out of Jesus' faithfulness into the past. When they didn't have nearly enough bread to feed everyone, or almost anyone, and Jesus easily feels he feeds them all, and yet in failing to remember that, in failing to have at least even just one of them be like, man, yeah, I'm super hungry too, but man, didn't we just see Jesus feed a whole bunch of people? We should just ask him. Nobody thought of that. They miss out on what would have been more than available to them in Jesus because they're failing to let Jesus' past faithfulness inform their present need. Or to say it another way, to see the present need in light of Jesus' faithfulness to them in the past. And in light of that, looking at their missed approach to Jesus, I think the question each and every one of us needs to ask ourselves in the process of our own panic whatever the need is that's causing us to fail and, and flounder and, and worry, is to ask ourselves the question, how have I seen Jesus' faithfulness to me in the past, though? Just pause for a minute and say, where have I seen Jesus' faithfulness to me when these circumstances looked equally dire, equally impossible? Where have I seen him show up? Because if, if Jesus' disciples had just done that, They never would have been arguing about bread. 
They never would have been like fixated on this need and panicking about the fact that they couldn't solve it. Instead, they would have been coming to Jesus just saying, hey, remember that amazing thing you did a couple weeks ago, feeding all those people? They were all fully satisfied. We've got a bread issue. Um, we need you to do that same thing again. And I think what Jesus was saying to his disciples then and what he's saying to us now today in his rebuke of our lack of faith, it's not, it's not meant to demean us. It's not meant to chastise you and say, why don't you have enough faith? It's to remind us of both his ability as well as his willingness to help in every time of need. That's what remembering these things helps us to do. He, he is who he promised to be, and he has been faithful. I mean, those of you who've been here for a while will have undoubtedly heard me say this. Jesus shouldn't have to start at zero. Every time some new circumstance, every time some new need, every time some new challenge presents itself, he has to start right from the bottom of like proving himself again. That shouldn't be the case because we've got too many examples of his faithfulness to us in the past. And to remember as well, as the great reformer Martin Luther said, uh, coming to Jesus in prayer is never about overcoming the reluctance of God, but about laying hold of his willingness. We're not seeing Jesus correctly if we come thinking, I need to just pray the right way or hard enough in order for him to meet this need. It's not about overcoming his reluctance, laying hold of his, will his willingness. Are you seeing Jesus rightly today? as your all-sufficient Savior, as the joyful giver of all good gifts? Are you reminding yourself of his faithfulness to you in the past, or are you missing him today? Have you forgotten his faithfulness to you? Convinced that, okay, no, this, this need here, this is going to be too much for Jesus to handle. Remembering his faithfulness to us in the past. These are some of the essential ways of avoiding this missed approach. So we began this morning talking about missed approaches with airplanes and how it's an inability to see the runway sufficiently that causes these aborted landings to take place. And I hope you've seen clearly that as it relates to the religious rulers and Jesus' own disciples, how they were carrying out some of these very same missed approaches. We've seen this principle playing out, spiritually speaking, in an inability to rightly see Jesus, in an inability to rightly see themselves, or both, and how it causes them to miss Jesus in the way they're approaching him. But a related term in aviation that I learned just this past week as I've been studying for this message is another aviation term I want to leave you with this in conclusion this morning. It's the term called a go-around. A go-around. Now, it's still an aborted landing. You still don't land the plane. But now, in this, in this aviation term, you can see the runway. You can see clearly it's not obscured. But either you, the pilot, or the air traffic controller see some obstruction on the runway some inability to land safely, and so the landing is aborted, the plane lifts off again, and as the name suggests, you, you go around, find a different means of approach so that you can safely land at your destination. Because that's the thing, right? A missed approach due to an inability to properly see the runway, sometimes, if you've had this happen before, sometimes that inability to see, that's not going to change. The fog's not going anywhere. And so sometimes it'll have to actually reroute you to another airport. But... 
Keep taking this analogy and still applying it to Jesus now. If you know and love Jesus at all, you also know, yeah, I don't want to land at any other airport. Um, I'm looking to land at this airport. There's no other airport for me to go to, as, as C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia. Lion says to Aslan, right, there is no other stream. There's nowhere else I want to land, Jesus. So if we're not seeing him correctly, or we see that there's something obscuring or blocking our path to him and our approach to him, but, but we want to. We're like, but I, I know I want to get here. One of the beautiful truths I think we're shown in the second half of our passage here in particular today is that rather than divert his own off to some other airport, instead, Jesus gives his own disciples the go-around call. You're not seeing it right. Take off. Try again. And he discerns that they're not seeing him properly, so he clears the fog, obscuring their vision, reminding them of his faithfulness to them in the past, and that he's more than able to meet their need in the present. And as we see there in verse 12, their vision is cleared in their second approach to Jesus, and they're enabled to safely land in Jesus and his teaching. And my prayer for each one of us today is that we would seek that same go-around call whenever we lost sight of Jesus. And we've lost sight of his grace, of his mercy, of his ability, of his compassion. When it's either revealed to us by God himself, as Jesus did in the passage here today, that we're not seeing him correctly, or we come to see that ourselves, that our vision has been obscured, that there's something getting in the way of me rightly approaching Jesus, it's preventing me from safe landing in him, that we'd have both the humility to acknowledge that that assessment is correct, like, I'm not seeing you right here, I'm not seeing you correctly, And then also have the faith to make the necessary adjustments, to clear the fog or find that different approach to our Savior so that we can safely land in Him. It's also, I mean, by the way, just one of the like really awesome, beautiful benefits of this, what we're doing here, the gathering of God's people, because it's so essential for maintaining or or reviving our clarified vision to have Christian friends, uh, Christian spouses, home groups, Gatherings like this, people who can be fellow historians, if you will, fellow librarians who can be like, look, remember what he did, though? Yeah, I hear your problem, man, that does look bad. Remember what you've seen Jesus do? We need those people in our lives. Every time that we come to a new situation and the darkness feels too great for his light to shine. So I want to close our time this morning by responding to what we've just heard in a moment of just kind of silent prayer and reflection. This is actually something that I'd like to begin doing every week instead of just kind of rushing right into communion, not just taking a time to pause, sit and just reflect on what the Spirit has just revealed in His Word. Jesus told us in John 14, a part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus. That's partly what His job is remind us of who he is, what he said, what he's done. So all I want us to do for just the next like one or two minutes is just ask the Spirit to do that revealing work in each of our hearts, to reveal Jesus to us, help us to see him more clearly, help us to see what he's shown us in his word. And then in a minute, we'll take time to remember Jesus' work on the cross by taking communion together. So let's take that time together to just pause and ask the Spirit to do that work in us.